Welcome to The Gathering Pod, the audio version of my weekly gathering room broadcast. I'm Martha Beck. Hey, I'm live again. Ooh, that's a big shot. There we go. How you guys doing? How's your week been? So glad to see you at The Gathering Room again. It's just wonderful to connect. I've been, I've been all out and about from this exact same physical spot. I've been doing all publicity for my new book, which you can see behind me because that's this is where I do my publicity. So I've talked to a zillion people, but as I said last week, you're my, you're my, you are my closest friends. So we're just here to hang out and to talk about the things that are on our minds. And by our minds, I think I mean my mind. <laughs> I hope it's on everybody's mind. Okay. <clears throat> so part of my publicity campaign, oh, am I supposed to say this is the gathering room and I'm Martha Beck? There you go. Part of my publicity thing was I did a book launch with Liz Gilbert of Eat, Pray, Love fame. And uh, she told a little story that I thought was very apropos for all of us. And it it starts with my book, which starts with Dante's Divine Comedy. Hmm. I've talked about him before. I'll talk about him again. The metaphor Dante gives for a midlife crisis is that he suddenly comes to himself in a dark wood and he doesn't know where he is and it's horrible and awful and he wants to get out, but he can't. And he's running about looking for a way out of this confusing situation and he sees a mountain and it's all glowy and golden. It says, the shoulders of the mountain are bathed in light. And he's like, ooh. I want to get up there. That'll help. So he starts climbing the mountain and he calls it, I think it's Dilettoso Monte, I think is what it's called. Anyway, it translates to Mount Delectable. Yum, yum. It's like a pile of donuts. So he's, he's climbing up and he keeps getting chased downward. First of all, he's exhausted. Secondly, it's a really miserable climb. And third, carnivorous beasts keep jumping on him, but he always, he ascribes emotional states to each of these beasts. So he sees a wolf that makes him so sad that he weeps and is in all his thoughts and is despondent. He sees a lion that is so frightening, it terrifies the very air. And he sees this leopard that is ravenous and can never be satisfied and just wants to eat him and eat him and eat everybody. And they keep chasing him around the mountain. He's not going to end up getting out of the dark wood of error by climbing this mountain. Okay, so the metaphor for this is we're running around our lives trying to be happy. Our culture says, here's a way to be happy. It's all shiny and glowy and its shoulders are bathed in light. And if you get up there, you won't be so miserable anymore. It is Mount Delectable. And so people try to climb toward it. And the way it looks like in every culture is different, but it's always called achievement in whatever language you speak. There's always something to be achieved. You'll be the mightiest hunter in the tribe, or you'll be um, you know, a Nobel Prize winner, or king of everything, or you know, um, the, win the most Oscars ever won by anyone. These are all things that we see as this golden, shiny halo. I just uh, worked for a wonderful long weekend with a group of uh, master coaches that are going through the master coach part of my training program. And we went through, we talked about what their goals were. And it was really interesting how they all had goals that were 
deeply heartfelt and from their souls. And then there were, there were often details that sort of sounded like Mount Delectable. Um, so it's like, let me put it in my own terms. So I wanted to be a writer. Even when I was like in, in high school, I had a bunch of brothers and sisters ahead of me who'd gone through high school. I have seven siblings and they'd all been into speech and drama. They wanted to be in the plays. They were in the plays. And so when I got to high school, everybody thought I should be in the plays. Okay. So I tried out for the plays and I did them. And I loved Shakespeare especially. And I remember thinking over and over, oh, I wish I'd written that. I wish I'd written that. I didn't think I would be a writer. I didn't think I was good enough at writing. I still don't. <laughs> good enough at writing to be a real writer. But I remember even when I was acting, sorry, my hair stylist styled my hair on the wrong, what on the opposite from what I usually do. That's a way to enhance your creativity. Just change the part of your hair. It's true. Brain science. Anyway, even when I was acting, I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't really know what I thought that I wanted to achieve in the way that my siblings had achieved. So then I'm going to do it again. I just keep pulling my hair to the wrong freaking side. I'm so confused. Okay. Sorry. We'll cut that interlude. I don't know. I look like some sort of poor, like a peasant who's, <laughs> I don't even know. I look like an extra in Les Mis. Anyway, I'm just going to go forward with bad hair. I didn't really want to be a performer. I wanted to be a writer. So then I got to be a writer. And I published a book and the book did well. And I went on a book tour like the one I'm on now, only I traveled about away from my bedroom. <laughs> and here's the thing. When you do really well at writing, what you realize in our culture is you have now joined the entertainment industry. You're not writing books anymore. You're going on TV. You're going on radio. Lately, I've been doing podcasts. You just, you're doing all the kinds of things that you do when you want to sell books. Now, this is seen as Mount Delectable in our culture. So being on TV is a big, splashy thing, bathed in gold. Um, being, having thousands of people show up to hear you speak, that's a big, glowy thing. And they're all really, really um, reinforced by the culture. Here's the problem for me. I still don't want to be a performer. I really don't like doing TV. I've loved my opportunities. I'm really great for the people who do love being on TV and for what they create, but that is not me, man. It is a good guess at what might make me happy, but it doesn't make me happy. So Liz Gilbert, when we did the book launch, was talking about her father who loved trees. And so he was going through, you know, going through the school system, smart guy, loved trees. Well, what could he do that was related to trees? He went into the paper pulping industry where they take trees and squish them into a pulper and make paper. Strangely, it did not make him happy. So he thought, well, what's even more up Mount Delectable? What's going to make people even more impressed? So he thought, aha, I will be a chemical engineer because pulping involves a lot of chemical engineering. So that's very fancy. And that made him, um, you know, look good in the eyes of the culture. And so he went on and he became an engineer and he was completely miserable. And then late in his midlife, he came awake in the dark wood of error as a chemical engineer and said, wait a second, really, I just like trees. So he quit his job and he went off to the forest and became a Christmas tree farmer. And that's when he finally became happy. 
So he went back to the first principles of what he loved. Now, each and every person out there, when you were little and you were left by yourself, even if it didn't happen very often, there were things that you loved. Remember the definition of fascination? Attention without effort. There were times when you just effortlessly plugged into some activity or some learning. It might have been reading novels. It might have been playing in, up in the trees. It might have been watching birds. It, it might have been playing the piano or um, even like a Rubik's Cube or something. It could be anything. That's part of your true nature. That is going to, to go with you wherever you travel in your life. If you try to go up Mount Delectable, which Liz calls Good Guess Mountain, you may starve the part of yourself that really wants to survive. You will get the, the depression wolf will attack you. The fear lion will attack you and you'll have panic attacks. The ravenous leopard will attack and you will not be able to get enough. I tell a story in the book of this guy whose company went, he did a, a, one of those initial public offering things and he sold his company and he made, I think, $200 million, $400 million in one day. And he threw a big party for himself and he called me from the party and he said into the phone at three in the morning, this isn't enough. When is it ever freaking gonna be enough? And um, never. The wrong thing, you can't get enough of the thing that you don't want to make you happy. How many, it's like, I lose money on every sale, but I make it up in bulk. Like every single thing I do to go up Mount Delectable makes me miserable, but if I go high enough, I, it should add up to happiness. This is not how it works, you guys. And yet, from infancy, we're programmed to do the things that our cultures think are desirable. And I don't know what it is for you. I don't know where you last left that little kid who had the attention without effort, the fascination. But you gotta go back and find that kid. And I believe it always remains a childlike presence. We, you may have heard me say this, we have a quality, a mutation in our genetic code that makes us different from other social apes, even though we are social apes. We are tailless social apes, most of us. Some of us still have tails. That's a different gathering room. What I wanna talk about right now is the, the mutation that makes us different. The mutation that makes us different is something called, it, it freezes us in a state called neoteny. Neo means new. Now, when other apes are born, they learn very fast. They, they're stronger than a human infant and they can learn skills much faster. They learn to climb trees, gather food, and all, beat each other on the head, whatever. But then they get to be puberty, to pubescent. Now, if you've seen chimpanzees on TV dressed in little outfits and, and doing cute things, they were baby chimpanzees. You will not get an adult chimpanzee dressed in a nice little outfit in a TV comedy because you know what? That chimpanzee can tear up a tree, throw it at you, and then tear your fingers off. And it will. They, they have an unfortunate intelligence that makes them actually attack fingers and um, private parts. It's not pretty. Their jaws get really heavy. They get really hairy and violent. Now the babies look more like us. That's why we love to watch them so much. Compared to an adult ape, their faces are flatter, their teeth are smaller. Um, they have different gestures. For example, when a 
when a chimpanzee does this, it's a, it's a fear signal. <laughs> but when we do it, it's to say, look, I still have baby teeth. I won't hurt you. And so that's a gesture of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to hurt you. Look, here are my teeth. That's a smile. <laughs> um, but another thing that the apes lose when they hit puberty is the ability to learn with incredible quickness. It's called fluid intelligence and baby brains have it in bucket loads. What they don't have is a lot of crystallized intelligence. Crystallized intelligence is when you've done something over and over and you know how it works and you've got a skill and your brain changes to accommodate that skill. Now for most apes, they learn, they learn, it's all fluid intelligence. They pick up enough crystallized intelligence to survive in their troop and bang, the neoteny turns off. The fluid intelligence goes, it flatlines and they just survive on their crystallized intelligence and they can still learn, but just nothing like they could when they were little. We go through the same thing. If you hear a language spoken before the age of 10, you will be able, if you hear it a lot, you'll be able to speak it without an accent if you learn it later in life. If you are not exposed to that language before the age of 10, you can learn the language anytime you want, but you will probably always have an accent. The ability to speak it perfectly is part of the brain that dies off after puberty. So some of the things that apes lose when they age, we also lose when we age. When we're about 23, we've usually learned enough to navigate the world. And at that point, most people stop challenging themselves, stop learning. But if we want to, we can really, really invest in that ability to learn quickly and push ourselves forward. And that's difficult if you're climbing Mount Delectable. It's, it's hard to keep pushing after your fluid intelligence has sort of leveled off. You have to push yourself to do things that are brand new and it will keep you in flow and keep you in joy as long as you're in fascination, attention without effort, doing what that childlike part of you wants to do. So it should feel like play. I've been teaching, I've been doing all this book publicity, I've been teaching classes, but I've also been getting up in the wee small hours to paint because nobody ever asked me to do that, but I just want to, like really a lot. And the more I spent time doing stuff on media in the daytime, the more I wanna go and be by myself and paint. So that's part of my child self that I'm allowing to come out and play. And I don't know what the, what the outcome will be, but I do know that the act itself is keeping me happy. And it's, my, my experience has told me that it's when we do these things that keep us happy in a very childlike way that we find out what our real destiny is. In Dante's case, he has to go through the inferno and lose all his accultured ideas. He has to go through hell, which is just like going through therapy, frankly. And he has to then bring his actions into alignment with what he really loves. And that's, he calls it purgatory or cleansing. And then he gets to paradise where things are working really well for him. If you are trying to climb Mount Delectable, it will never be enough. It'll feel like you're burning out. Your body will rebel, your emotions will rebel, uh, you won't have the energy for it. And if you stop climbing towards something that will never make you happy and say, what did I love as a kid? Where is the child in me that never goes away thanks to this genetic mutation? Where is he or she or they yearning to play again? And when you go into that playful mode, 
That's exactly when you're guided in Virgil's, in Dante's case, a guy named Virgil shows up, you're guided into the part of yourself that gets rid of the cultural ideals and then brings your whole life into line with your core values and your, and your longing, your deepest longing. So that's what I have to say. Just notice if you're climbing Mount Delectable, it's, it'll be diminishing returns. You'll feel depressed, anxious, rapacious, you know, it'll never be enough. And it may just be time to turn around and go back and find the kid you once were. That kid may be the, on the other side of hell, but you can go through hell for that kid. So we will talk much more about this at other times, but I just thought the concept of Mount Delectable or Good Guess Mountain is a really interesting one to have. And the feeling of climbing that mountain is good to, to notice. And then the ability to turn around and go back down the mountain and say, I'm going to do what I love, even if I have to go through hell to reach it. That's a recipe for a happy life, folks. So... Hello, the lovely peoples. This is Marty, Martha, inviting you to a free masterclass that I have made called Five Paths to Your Purpose. Probably the most common question I get from people is, how do I find my purpose? Why don't I feel that I'm on purpose? Well, it turns out there are certain things you have to do to find your purpose, and I broke them down into five, and I made a little masterclass about it. So if you'd like to see it, just go to marthabeck.com slash purpose and you will be able to watch it without any charge at all. I'm just going to check here to see if fabulous Rowan Mangan is sending me. I don't have my text field out. Could you tell I just barely got off another broadcast before I did this? Um, yeah. Okay. Beautiful. Um, Tiffany asks, how do we discern whether imposter syndrome is tricking us to feel out of integrity? I actually think I'm doing work that is aligned with my soul and I'm succeeding beautifully, but I continue to second guess myself and struggle to feel at peace with it. Whenever I get good feedback, I'm astonished and relieved. Yes, Tiffany, this is because your cultural belief system is telling you go up Mount Delectable. And when we decide to go with our soul, the, the culture will tell us you're not doing it right. You're an imposter. And because you don't have a lot of cultural support, when you do get cultural support, you feel really good. But most of the time you won't get it. Imposter syndrome is a really good sign that you're doing something that is worthwhile to you. It's, it's a strange thing that when we set out to do the thing that is our heart's desire, that is most likely when we feel like an imposter because the culture doesn't accept it. And so we undermine ourselves to try to have other people approve of us. So I'm really glad you're doing this, Tiffany. Stay on your path. That's exactly what it feels like. You go through hell by shedding those social beliefs and by continuing to commit to what you really love. Stephanie says, how do we keep fascination from hardening into a quest for mastery? Well, I don't think we, sh I don't think it ever hardens. If you're in a quest for mastery, you're always mo moving forward. Uh, Michael, you know, Michelangelo, they say, um, there's a saying attributed to him. I didn't sculpt the David. I just took a block of marble and carved away everything that wasn't the David. He didn't actually say that. That is not something he actually said. But there is a saying, he there is something he did write down, which was, if people knew how hard I work, they would understand why I do such great stuff. Like he said, it's not a mystery. I am pushing and pushing and pushing myself to mastery. But his joy was in that. 
The thing, the thing that can harden is the, the attempt to please other people. The actual push toward mastery, there's something called the rage to master that is really pronounced in prodigiously talented artists. It's not that they're born with more talent than others, it's, it's that they, they feel or they can foresee or sense a kind of beauty that they wish to bring into the world and the desire to get it right is so intense. And the same thing happens in what I call the spiritual sports, like skiing, surfing. I, I don't golf, but golf seems to do the same thing to people. And it's when you're doing something against the forces of nature, where you have to be so quiet in your mind and so aligned with what you're doing, that you go into that state of flow. And people, <clears throat> you know, surfers who surf, ten, surf 10 foot waves, <clears throat> go out and try to find 20 foot waves and then 30 foot waves. The passion for creativity and mastery is part of the joy of being human. It's part of neoteny to constantly grow at the pace that a baby grows, to always be learning new things. And I hope to go out doing that. Now, if I say it has to meet somebody else's standards or it has to make a certain amount of money or whatever, then I'm going up Mount Delectable and all the joy will leave it. All the joy will leave it. So don't do it to meet social goals. I've coached a million people who had some passion that they then chose to put into a social role, athletes, artists, musicians, <clears throat> and promptly lost all the joy. So yeah, the, the culture won't serve you, but the quest for mastery is something that comes from nature. It comes from within us. Um, oh, Tracy says, anyone else started not telling lies? I'm on day seven. Oh, I love this. The no lie challenge. It's in the book. Yes. And um, just people who don't lie for a couple of weeks, their health gets better, their relationships get better, <clears throat> their careers work better. I mean, there's research on this and it's so simple. But the fear of being somehow socially out of kilter is so extreme that most of us go on and lie anyway. But I'm so proud of you for not doing it. I'm on year five of my current integrity cleanse. Um, it's not that I've never told a single lie that in that five years, but I've really tried to keep it to a bare minimum. Okay, it's, it, it's going to yield great dividends, I promise you. Donna, how you doing? She says, how do you handle the in-between what makes you happy and the what you have to do to get what makes you happy? Um, that's a really excellent point. A lot of it is about shedding the internal dialogue around having to sell yourself out you know, to the company store to get enough money. I had a thing this week where I was really tired, like I'd done so many back-to-back -back publicity things and I was generating so much energy to do them. And I was like seven o'clock at night and I was like going into the 15th thing of the week. And I was, I had a moment where I didn't like what I was doing. Now this is very unusual for me. But later, and I didn't enjoy, I mean, I did my best on the interview. I don't think it went particularly well. The other person didn't seem to have much energy either. So it was kind of like, eh. But later I went through it and I thought about the emotions and, and thoughts that were present in me as I sat down to do that. And what I was thinking was, I have to do this. It's really important. Now, this is a whole different gathering room, but what happened is I was believing a cultural standard thing. I mean, I was doing a big interview with a big major star 
And I was telling myself, this is really important. I have to do it. By the culture's terms, that's true. But that was not true for me. And the lie that I had to do it, even though it was hard, was burdensome. So then I did the Byron Katie work, which you can check out at Byron Katie's website. And I, one of the processes we use in the Byron Katie work is you take the thought that's causing suffering and you think about the opposite and you wonder if that could be as true. So this is important. I have to do it. I turn it around to this isn't important. I don't have to do it. And I was like, hmm, yeah, that actually feels truer. And some, suddenly my body felt light. I could feel an energy running through me. And so it was something now that I was choosing to do. Be relatively important but in the scheme of things not really that important but I was choosing to do it and suddenly it got so much lighter here's another thing I've seen in zillions of people I've coached they hate their jobs they decide to do something else they quit the job they give two weeks notice and suddenly they love the job and the reason is they're not telling themselves they have to do it they're doing exactly the same things but they're genuinely enjoying it they're genuinely enjoying the people and the reason is that the psychological burden has been lifted. We can lift that psychological burden. That's why in the book, in my integrity book, I talk about clearing our minds before I talk about aligning our actions. The mind has to be clear. And when the mind is clear and you say, I'm going to do this in order to get, pay the rent to do that, and I'm choosing it, and it's not really that important, it's not life or death, suddenly joy comes in, even to the most sort of prosaic and utilitarian things. It's really fascinating to play with the mind and then see how it, it, it translates into action. Okay, Anne says, can you talk a little <clears throat> about how to tell when you've wrapped your purpose or mission up in achievement toxicity? I have totally done this with light writing. It's embarrassing. Me too, Anne. We've all been there. Um, we climb up the slopes of Mount Delectable again and again and again. This is why, you know, Dante goes through it once. He goes all the way from the dark wood through integrity, up purgatory, into paradise. We go through it around and around and around. And every time we say, oh my gosh, why is this not working? We're back on Mount Delectable. And all you have to do is go, oops, all right, going back down the mountain. Got to find a teacher. Got to get into the my inner demons. Got to set myself free from the beliefs that are keeping me in this state of mind and wanting to achieve and getting toxic. And it's, it's a process we do over and over. And it's a skill. It itself is a skill that gets easier as we do it over and over and over. You'll be fine, Anne. You're brilliant. Okay, Marcia says, when I was little, I lived on a plantation where my uncle worked. And it was isolated with th three... It was isolated with three from the neighborhood community. I don't know what isolated with three means. I used to walk to the main street that is miles and miles away talking with the trees. I formed a bond with those trees and now at age 58, I still miss them. Who am I? Ooh, I love that. Who knows? You may be a tree. The whole process of finding our... our identity or integrity is to let go of all conventional definitions of who we are and it may be you're a tree soul that just decided to show up as human and really wants to go hang out with other trees I don't know but if you can get into that childlike frame of mind where everything is possible and everything is magical guess what 
everything becomes possible and magical stuff starts happening all around. So I'd say you're a person who needs to go talk to the trees to find out the next step. Just a hunch. See if it's right. If it doesn't feel right, do something else. Steven says, how do you know when we're climbing? Because it's effortful. Dante is like, oh, he's so tired. He's so exhausted. He's like dragging himself up this mountain. And it feels laborious, heavy. And physically in the body, it tenses our muscles. We literally physically feel weaker. We are weaker. Our immune systems are weaker. Um, our muscles are weaker. Our organs are weaker. Everything is weaker. Um, we get depressed, all that stuff Dante talked about with the beasties. And things don't go as well as we thought. We keep falling back down the mountain. When you get to the thing you were really meant to do and you've cleared your mind and you're doing your on purpose, it's amazing how things sort of clear in front of you and what was so hard before becomes really simple. It, it is a kind of grace, a kind of magic. Reagan says, what if you're doing something on Mount Delectable to sustain your true love? Yeah, so this is the job or whatever. Or maybe even being in a relationship that helps you sustain whatever it is you really love. Start inching your life away from the thing that you're doing, that you're selling out and doing more and more of the things you love. So just, there's a whole chapter in my book about just spend a little more time on your true love and a little less time doing the other thing and keep edging it that way. And eventually, that's what happened to me with teaching um, business school. Even though I liked it, um, I didn't love academia. And as I started spending more and more of my time counseling the students, there came a day when I thought, I think I could just quit teaching and just counsel people. So that's what I did. So just edge your time that way. Uh, Deborah says, couldn't climbing Mount Delectable to make a lot of money be the step to the freedom money provides? In other words, Liz Gilbert's dad needed money to buy that Christmas tree farm. Boy, maybe if you could highlight that for me, Ro, I want to do a whole gathering room on that because that is, that is the biggest cultural lie that we all have to fight. It is, a, it is, it's just not true. I've watched it. I've done the research. I've done it formally. I've done it informally with clients. I've lived it. It is not true that you have to build a big pile of money in order to live your dreams. I truly believe that if um, John Gilbert, Liz Gilbert's dad, had done what he loved from the beginning, he would have been able to support his family just fine and also felt that joy that he got when he finally went back to the forest. But I'm just going to have to tell you that now because we're out of time. But I really want to do a gathering room on it because it's a big old cultural lie. And so many of us bite down on that hook and just uh, get stuck for the rest of our lives. Okay, Buddhafield says, can you talk about privacy and integrity as someone in the public eye? Yep. Um, if you're in the public eye, you'd better be in integrity unless you're willing to take a lot of crap because everybody's transparent these days. So there is privacy in integrity. You know, I kind of go back and forth about showing our baby on camera because she doesn't get to choose yet whether she wants to be public or not. Um, and I'm not going to show up at the gathering room naked unless I so choose at a time to be determined later because I don't have to show you everything to be open with you at this level of a relationship. But I can tell you one thing. If you were to talk to everybody in my immediate life and ask them if my account of myself is similar to what they're perceiving, it would be yes. Because I just, I just 
try to stay in total integrity. And being in the public eye is another, it, it really gives you a kick up the old whoopsie daisy if you ever do something, you know, like having Oprah call me out for being gay on a, a nationwide broadcast. She didn't know I was gay. We were doing a nationwide broadcast. And I was like, I was talking to this woman about being gay and Oprah was like, what, you're gay? And I had to kind of come out. And I was talking to her about it on this interview we did and she said, well, I hope I didn't upset you. And I was like, no, you were great. It's the 4 million others that were watching that gave me the issue. So yes, there's privacy and integrity and you walk that line yourself. But just let me recommend a lot of integrity if you intend to have a public life. A couple more questions were over time, but I'm just going to keep going. Uh, Mel Elizabeth says, climbed Mount Delectable for 20 years until I joined our Wayfinder Life Coach training program. Yeah! Have not felt such a homecoming for as long as I can remember. Thank you. Oh, thank you for coming to the Wayfinders. And that's what we do. We find a way to our heart's desires without having to climb Mount Delectable. We do it for ourselves and we do it for our clients. And Annalise, Annalise says, but telling the truth makes a lot of people upset. It does indeed. And actually saying anything will make a lot of people upset these days. You know, go online, say anything, someone will disagree with you. But you might, so you might as well say what you really mean, right? Here's the thing. The people who don't want you to tell the truth are the people who bought into the same cultural system that socialized you. So when you, like I have a, I have a friend who went off and did her own business and her friend who'd been in corporate with her suddenly became viciously angry at her because that the, the friend thought you have to stay corporate and she was trapped on her Mount Delectable. So when the other woman left and went and thrived, the first woman was really upset. That's none of our business. What people think of us is none of our business or as Lao Tzu said, 2,400 years ago, care about other people's opinions and you become their prisoner. So don't get stuck on Mount Delectable just to get the approval of people you don't really like who aren't doing anything that makes them happy either. And go back to that playful, childlike self that is always awake, always alive, and you always waiting for you to come back and, and play and make the world magical again. I'll see you guys next week. Thanks for showing up. Sorry about the hair. <laughs> for almost 30 years, I've been teaching people to do something that I call reading your internal compasses. I believe we are all born with direction finding mechanisms that are inherent in us and will help us find our best destiny. Uh, a few years ago, though, I realized that a lot of people were getting very, very anxious. And this is true. Anxiety is going nuts all over the planet. So I spent five years researching and writing a book about how to read your compasses and lower the anxiety that's getting between you and your right life. And I'm very excited about the book. It's coming out in 2025. But I would love to teach you about it before the book comes out. So this summer, I'm doing a course called The Wayfinder's Compass, Moving Beyond Anxiety. And you can check it out by going to marthabeck.com slash compass. And we will have a fabulous time putting you on course for your North Star. It's a bewildering moment to be alive. That's why Martha Beck, me, and Rowan Mangan, me, created Bewildered, the wildly successful podcast for people trying to figure it out. 
Most of us are trying to fit society's expectations about how we should live, which is stressful and confusing. On Bewildered, we look at topics like perfectionism, what it means to have enough, anxiety, and creativity to see where the culture may be pushing us all away from the lives that truly fulfill us. If you're bewildered, if you want to think and you love to laugh, come join us. 